this is a great Sunday to be here because not only is the community growing, but we are more and more affirming what God is doing in the lives of people, men and women, here. And regularly, we want you to know how we are growing leaders and how God's using people. So today we have the honor and privilege of uh, sharing and announcing a new opportunity for one of our current leaders. But in order to do that, since we come from all sorts of places, uh, we want to explain this morning how we do church leadership. And so this may be new to you. The good news is if you read the Bible, it's very unclear on how we're supposed to organize a church. There's not a lot of information. God didn't tell us exactly how to organize church. And I think why? Because the church is all over the world and there's all sorts of cultures and environments. So there's total flexibility. So what I want to share with you, I'm not saying this is the way to organize church. But it's as we've read the scriptures, here's how we feel we're called to organize the community. So a couple of slides that will be helpful. And then we'll bring up a family and make an announcement. Uh, A church, as we see in scripture, is led by elders. That may be foreign to some. Well, some would say, well, no, the pastor leads the church. If you read the Bible carefully, when Paul is talking about leaders in the church, almost always he uses the term elder. In America, we use the term pastor, but they're not synonymous. So what is an elder? Verse 75, the elders who, and this gives the role, direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those who, are, who work in preaching and teaching. And so one of the primary roles of elders is to lead the affairs of the church, direct the vision of the church, and guide the teaching. So a lot of our teachers here are elders. So Jim, you see teaching. He is an elder. Steve, you see teaching. He is an elder. Kenny, you see teaching. He is an elder. doesn't mean that someone who's not an elder can't teach, but we see as we read the Bible Primarily, God gives a group, not one, a group of elders responsibility on what a, teach, what a church believes. Now, you also see, so elder is also called in the Bible overseer, or depending on your translation, presbyter. It's all the same kind of role, right? Second, deacon. So in the church, you see deacons. It's all over the New Testament. Uh, Philippians 1.1. The church we're going to read about in Acts 16 today Paul later writes, and look at how he opens the letter to the church that he started. He says, Paul and Timothy, slaves or servants or bondservants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people, everyone, in Christ Jesus at Philippi. So the church is made up of a bunch of people. Together, and then he, he teases out two groups, together with the overseers and deacons, elder overseer, and then Deacon, diakonos, which also means servant. So there's a word that's used often in the New Testament called servants. Sometimes it's teased out and interpreted as deacon. As we read the Bible, again, we're not like saying this is the only way. As we read the Bible, we see two offices or like permanent fixtures in a church that make up its leadership. Elders and deacons. So who leads the church? Elders, vision, teaching. Deacons help lead the church. Then you say, Jose, but everyone like calls you a pastor. How does that fit in the mix? Well, in the New Testament, you also see a variety of gifts that God gives the church to grow and flourish every community. 
So God doesn't just bring elders and deacons. He actually gives all sorts of giftedness. It all comes from the same Holy Spirit. It's expressed in different people in different ways, men and women. And Ephesians 4.11 gives us a list of some of the functions. How do we function? So Ephesians 4.11, for Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So you, a church does not have to have those with apostolic or visionary, missionary leadership, evangelistic, uh, shepherding. Uh, pastors also called a shepherd. Uh, but, but Paul says that in the church there are a variety, pastors, teachers, and, and apostles, and prophets, and and we should embrace all of that. Every one of you here, if you're in Jesus, God, by his spirit, wants to function. He wants to do things. We don't see these as offices, like who's the apostle, who's the prophet, who's, who's the teacher. We see them as expressions of God's grace in the lives of his people. And so we do see that there is a role for pastors, shepherds in the church. But as a community, you just need to know this is how we do it. Elders and deacons uh, lead the, the, the guidance of the church. So what do pastors do? So I'm going to pull it all together on one slide. This might be helpful. In our community, here's how we tease it out. And the Bible gives leeway on how a community can express it. Here's how we do it. Elders lead the vision and teaching. I'm one of them. Uh, but just one. There's six, and we're going to announce another one in a few weeks. There will be seven. Deacons lead specific areas. So the elders are looking at the total view of the church. Deacons, some lead the setup and tear down. Some lead the tech team here. Some lead the hospitality. Some lead the youth group. Some lead in the kids area. Some lead men and women. Some lead in justice and taking care of the poor here in our community and specifically focus on those in need. So deacons have a narrower role, but they're all leaders. This makes sense? So that's how we tease it out. Pastors, in our context, work with the elders and the deacons to equip people. So we look for people who are already doing, they have the character quality of an elder and a deacon, they have the humility of an elder and a deacon, but we also identify a few people in our community, and in our context, they are paid to serve with the elders and the deacons to make sure that everyone is being equipped to God's good work. Deacons are focusing narrowly, and the elders on vision and teaching, but the pastors are working with everyone to make sure if you're here that you Understand the gospel and the implications in your world that you are rising up to be the Jesus follower that God's called you to be, to shepherd you and lead you and guide you into the work that Jesus is calling you to do. Hear me. Pastors do not do work for you. Well, let's have the pastor do it. No, pastors are equippers and it requires so much energy that we pay them to make sure that you are living up to your God-given potential. And that you are equipped with the resources you need to do God's work. Does that make sense? That may be very different than what you're used to. Is this the only way to do church? No. We just see as a community, this is the way that God's leading us. All right? So that's, hopefully that's not divisive. Pastors don't lead churches. Elders lead churches. And they really confuse you. Some people have multiple roles. Now, this morning we want to welcome up the Mosers and... Um, Brandon and Janelle have been a part of our community for a while, but they've been a part of the, 
Solid Rock turned to Jesus Church story for 11 plus years. And Brandon has been serving as a deacon in our community. Just own the stage. Just, just own it. Just own it. And they've, they've been leaders in our community. And Brandon has served as a deacon. And I'm also going to invite our elders and their spouses, if you'd come up as well. And what we want to do, we're excited to announce that after serving as a deacon for so long, you look for people who are already equipping people and motivating people to do their God-given calling. And as we've looked at Brandon's life, you need to know this. Number one, he's already doing the work of a pastor. He's equipping people. He's equipping you. As a matter of fact, he's shepherding you in the worship of Jesus every week. And we want to affirm Brandon as our newest pastor here in the Sunset family. And so that means that, yeah, we want to do that. Cool. So good. That's so good. Well, uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Acts 16. Uh, thanks for your patience on that. This is like one of the biggest joys you can have is to see someone grow in their area of influence. Uh, well, we're going to read Acts 16. I'm going to invite you to stand if you would. We don't always do this. Uh, if you wouldn't mind standing to your feet, you've been already seated for a while. Um, if you can stand, stand. And if you, oh, if you need a Bible, I forgot that. Oops. If you need a Bible, can you slip up your hand real quick? We've got some friends that will get you one. If not, you can look along with the people around you. Just keep your hand up. We'll get a, a copy of the scriptures to you. And we're going to read all of Acts 16, all 40 luscious verses, because there's nothing more important than hearing the word of God. Uh, we'll just wait a second. And Courtney Stewart, um, just keep your hand up. We'll get a Bible to you. Courtney was just hired as our communications uh, director. So, hi, Courtney. And first assignment, read half the Bible. <laughs> I have I a love, theory that Jose is having me read all the ones with the difficult names in them. Yes. So you can just keep them. Keep I love my that. job, the gift of torture. All right. Uh, Acts 16, starting in verse 1. All right. Let's dive in. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Somathris, and the next day went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their, seat in the their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in this house. At the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want us to get rid of, to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Wow. Well done. You may have a seat. Uh, that's not easy. Well done. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Way to go, Courtney. Uh, well, here, here we are. We read like 40 verses. We talked about church leadership. Uh, this morning, I want to keep it a little more brief, brief and specific because we see a turning point in the movement of the church. I did a teaching last week. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed Dom last Sunday. Well, I was at Westside, and I did a teaching just on the first 15 verses. And so rather than replaying that here, uh, I'm going to do the whole chapter this morning. But if you want to hear a message on the first 15 verses, I think God gave me a word for, for Westside Church. I put it on our podcast. So if you just go to our website 
and look at Acts 15, uh, 16, 1 through 15, you'll see it. But let me just recap. Uh, the church is now moving from east to west. And, and what you catch in Acts 16 is that Paul was confused about what to do in the next season of his life and his work. And he thought he was supposed to stay east in the region of Phrygia and Galatia. But God was calling him west. If you can see it even from the back, God actually pushes him instead of staying east and further south. He pushes him west and north up to the region called Macedonia to a city called Philippi. And we see that a church is planted. Now, now today is a special day because we're affirming that God is doing new things in this community. And he's raising up new leaders to do new work. And we see that in Brandon and Janelle. And we see that in God bringing Courtney. But let's just look this morning. All we want to see is who's included. Who is the church made up of? What should a church look like? What are the kinds of people that you find? And we want to look at that to reflect on our own community and say, are we the kind of church that reflects what you see in the pages of Scripture? Are we on track? Are we going off course? I think Acts 16 actually helps us. This morning, I want you to write down a few things about the kind of people that you see in church. Number one, you see that the church includes business owners. This is so good. The church includes business owners. Look at verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met um, by, I'm sorry, jump back to verse 14. Verse 14, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. AKA, that's code for a century, for she's rich. So you see the first person in the church, the first person who comes to faith, breaks every stereotype you could find. In the first century, it was a completely male-dominated culture. You think you have issues if you're a lady now. Try living 2,000 years ago. You had little to no rights. Who's the first person that Luke records who's open to the gospel? It's a woman. May not be earth-shattering for us, but for the people reading these pages in the early church, this was huge. But it's not just an ordinary woman. It is a businesswoman. The head of a household would be the eldest male in their culture. That would be that kind of the elder. And you don't see that name. It's Lydia who leads the household. Most scholars think that at some point she was married and she's probably a widow but now she runs a business. She's a single mom who's working hard, who's a dealer in purple cloth. The church has always been a mixed bag of people. So in a male-dominated society, you see that Lydia comes to faith. Principle number one, what do we learn from this? We already have the resources to accomplish God's mission in our city. We already have it. God brings Lydia the church. Where does the church meet? At the end, tucked away in verse 40. You know that the church meets in Lydia's house. God gave her square footage with a purpose. God gave her a career that had more to do than her selling and buying cloth. See, God gave her the right career at the right time, and she lived in the right city to hear the right message of Jesus. And then when she embraces Jesus, here's what happens. It affects every single part of her, and we need to get that. What do we need to do to accomplish God's mission in our city as a church? I'm here to suggest to you that we already have it. Everything that we need to do what God wants us to do is right here. Why? God brought you. 
And because he brought you, he brought elements and aspects of your life that's going to make an amplified difference in the city that we live in. This is good news. You are the type of person that's been brought into God's church to do God's work. Now, we live in a city that's growing. There is a million, this boggles my mind, a million new square feet of business park space within less than a mile of here. Have you noticed if you've gone out 26 to Brookwood Parkway that they've redone the exit to fit a million more square feet on top of the millions of square feet of business space already occupied in Hillsboro, you see construction right over here on Cornelius Pass. Why? We live in a city that's growing. This is such good news. You see, God's bringing business people here to flourish, not just their industry, but God is going to do that continually to bring more and more people who need to experience life in Jesus. So you don't have to go far to do God's mission work. It's right here. Now, what does that mean for us? It means that we need to break down the old school idea that I have a spiritual life and then I have a business life and then I have a home life and because we live in the Northwest, I have an adventure life, right? And the adventure life is what goes on Instagram. The rest is just too boring. I have a spiritual life. So on Sundays I do my spiritual thing and then, and then in the workplace I have my like nine to five or eight till midnight, I've got my business life. And, and hey, that's a church thing, but that church thing doesn't work here because this is business. That's ludicrous. If Jesus doesn't affect every part of our life, then we're in trouble. You see, there is only one thing. It's called life. That's it. That's what you get. And so, so Jesus invades not only Lydia's supposed spiritual life, whatever that is. No, there's just life. She becomes a follower of Jesus. What does she immediately do? She says to Paul and Silas, stay at my house. You need a place to crash? I've got some rooms. Come, eat my food. I want to hear more about this Jesus. And then as more and more people start to follow Jesus, Lydia says, wait a minute. I've got the space. Let's just not have you, Paul and Silas, live with me. I, I want the whole church to come to my house. And some of you have been given more than enough. God's blessed you immeasurably. And can I just remind you, that is a privilege and an honor and a blessing from God. And it's not for you. It's not for you. Only. No, you get to enjoy it. Wow, that's a privilege. But all of my resources, all of my life belongs to Jesus. So what we want to grow in as a community is remembering that we're like Lydia. We're a church of the mixed bag. We're, we're letting Jesus affect every bit of us. Our career and my schooling, some of your education isn't just for you. It's to share with other people. Some of your skills aren't just for you. Some of your adventure isn't just for you. That relaxed time, the thing that you love to do, God actually wants to use that. Why don't you consider including other people in that? teaching them that, showing them that. And that's what life in Jesus should be all about. So we need to remember the principle that we already have the resources that we need to do God's mission in our city. So that means every one of us has something to give. And that means that everything I do matters. So I want to encourage you as, as a Sunset Church family that, that if this is your home, if you filled out the survey and you said like, this is my Church, can I just say, plug in. 
Now, where's the best way to plug in? It's to start with where you're at. What are your passions? What are your giftings? I think of people in this church. Uh, one new family here. Uh, Jessica's a photographer, and she just their family just joined the church. And, and she came thinking, man, I want to use this skill. And she saw a slide that said photographers needed. And what's the first thing she did? She contacted the church and said, hey, I'm a photographer. What do you need? And now she's using that skill to serve you. Now, not all of us are photographers. We all have an iPhone. That's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. But everyone has something to give. And so the point is, what is it that you have to give? So the first person that we see in the church is a successful businesswoman. But that's not the only profile we get. I want us to notice another one. The church includes the broken and abused. Look at verse 16. The church includes the broken. Not everyone is on cloud nine. Not everyone makes the front cover of the magazine. Some are in serious trouble. Verse 16, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit, and that's not a good thing, by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Fortune I think this is so comical. Would you want to join this church? Run by CEO woman, and who's the next person to join? A fortune teller. Do you not see, like, sometimes we read the Bible, we read it so fast, we don't see the color, but we get it this morning. The next person to join the church is a slave woman. Look at the opposite extremes. CEO runs her company, head of the household, slave. Run by other men, manipulating her, and this power that's destroying and abusing her, and all the guys want to do is make money. And this is the church. This has always been the church. The church is not just upper middle class suburbanites, to put it in our context. The church is everyone. Now, what does it mean that a slave who had a spirit? It's actually more gnarly than that. The Greek, the Greek is graphic. It's pneuma pythona, which means a python spirit. A Pythonian spirit. In the Greek pantheon of gods, there was Apollo who had the ability to tell the future. And she had that kind of demonic influence that took control and gave her the ability to predict what was to come. Now, interestingly, we know her name is Lydia, the CEO. Do you even get the slave's name? We don't even get that. We don't even get her name. Because she's just a victim, and she's low. She's owned, she's manipulated, she's influenced by demonic powers. Now, what does she do? She says to the people, this is really weird, middle of verse 17. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be, slave, uh, to be saved. So you got a demon-influenced woman who's saying, listen to these guys. That doesn't make any sense. Actually, it makes total sense. What is happening is she's trying to malign Paul and Silas by saying, hey, the ability I have, we're all on the same team. Trying to malign Jesus. And so subtly she's saying, because she's an influential person in a different way, listen to these guys. And what happens? Paul, after this happens again and again and again, Paul becomes annoyed. Now, don't misread annoyed. Actually, you could also translate it disturbed or grieved or burdened. 
He sees what's going on. He's not annoyed at her. She's not the bother. It's the demon that's manipulating. It's the men who are abusing her and using her for money. And so what does Paul do? This is so good. He's not mad at her per se. He steps up and he casts out the demon. I just love this. What we need to remember, principle number two, is we have the Holy Spirit's power to confront injustice in our city. This is so good. Not only do we have all the resources that we need to do the mission of God, we actually have the Holy Spirit's power to confront injustice in our city. For them, it was this rightless young girl who has no right. She's owned. They could do whatever they want with her. But the gospel steps in and he says, okay, what I'm going to do is not destroy her life. By the Spirit of God, I'm going to cast out this demon and neutralize. So now these guys have no more money to be made. I'm going to go to the root of the problem, not just the surface. And so the good news is our culture is very different, but yet the same Spirit has been given to us. We have the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to confront the injustices. Now what are the injustices in our, in our world? Some of them are the same. There are people still influenced by dark demonic powers. Absolutely. Well, here's the good news. We don't have to be chicken. We have the Spirit. Where we see injustice, where we see darkness at work, we don't speak bad of people. We don't confront people. We don't get annoyed by people. We get annoyed by the enemy. And we can step in in the power of the Spirit and cast that out. Now, if that doesn't freak you out, it should. But guess what? God's given His church that kind of authority on the earth. We have the authority to speak to demonic powers and say, no, not here. No, not her. What are some of the other problems in our day? There's addictions, addictions of all sorts. We immediately go, I say addiction, you're thinking drugs and alcohol. And, and yeah, but we, by the power of the Spirit, have to speak to the more subtle ones, like work and workaholic tendencies, which is an addiction. And it destroys families because we're obsessed with more stuff and more accolades at the office at the neglect of our own families. We need to speak to those addictions by the Spirit. Technology. I, I need you. I need you. I need you. You're so pretty. You're so helpful. And it's a tool. It's a tool that's destroying many people at multiple levels whether it's just the need for more information or the portal to darkness that is here. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. We need to speak to addictions, to the addiction in the Northwest of adventure. And I make light of it. And, and going out is a great thing, but there can be an obsessive or a whole world is revolved around entertainment at the neglect of the work of God. I don't have time and, and, and hear this with love. I don't have time for the church. But I have time for A, B, C, D, E, and F. Because those are fun. And I deserve to be entertained. Do you see the subtle? doesn't have to be. I'm not, I'm not against. I like to have fun as well. But there are all sorts of things that we need to, by the Spirit, call them out. They're not Jesus' best but also, and I don't want to step on toes, but I will. We do have 
in, in Oregon in particular, a culture of death. Now, this is not a political statement, but hear me clearly. It's actually a theological statement. If you stand up for the rights of the unborn or the elderly and say we shouldn't put people to death, you will be maligned as backwards and not progressive. And again, this is not a political statement. It's a theology statement. Jesus came to give life. And in our culture, our culture affirms the right to death more than the right to life. And so we need to stand up by the Spirit, never maligning people, but speaking by the Holy Spirit to the culture of life. And Jesus came to give life and life in abundance. So we don't resist people, we resist the powers. Okay, let's look at the third one. We're almost done. The church includes government officials. This is interesting. The the church doesn't just include the business CEO, upper class. It doesn't include just alone the, the slave woman. We'll call her lower class in society. But it includes the middle class, the, the, the Roman prisoner, who, the jailer who's brought to faith in Jesus. Now we'll look at him in a second, but we want to see the contrast. The whole spectrum of the culture is in the church. But notice, the church is always for everyone. This doesn't make any sense. Government officials are usually impeding business progress. Not always. But what are the three profiles you see in this church? Is someone who's completely broken and someone who's completely entrepreneurial and someone in the middle who represents the government. These people have, it's almost like a joke, you know, three guys come to the bar and one's, you know, like, you know, like, it's just, it just doesn't, this doesn't make sense. But this is the church at its essence. Now, I want us to notice not so much that the, the, the jailer is included in the church, I want us to focus on how he gets into the church. We read the story. We don't need to uh, read it all again, but we need to recap it. Paul and Silas end up in prison before the jailer can hear the gospel. Now, we heard at the end. Paul says at the end before, before it's all over, you guys have no right. They beat him and throw him in jail, he and Silas, put the stocks on them to keep them in place and subtly torture them. At the end, Paul says, you had no right to do that. We, Paul and Silas, are Roman citizens. It was illegal. These officials could have been thrown in prison themselves for imprisoning unlawfully without trial Roman citizens. Why didn't Paul at the beginning just say, I'm a citizen? Paul allowed himself to be put in prison. As a matter of fact, when they're in the prison, it says they're worshiping at night. Paul and Silas, I want to suggest, are not praying that God would get him out of jail. Look at verse 25. You're like, he's gone kooky. Of course they're praying. If you're in jail, you pray that God get get me out. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. It's like a worship gathering in a smaller quarters. You're like, you know? And the other prisoners, and this is the key, were listening to them. Paul and Silas saw every opportunity as a gospel opportunity. They're in prison and they're like, okay, we could get out. All we have to do is play our citizen card, but they don't. Why? The phrase, the other prisoners. 
Paul and Silas are thinking like good missionaries, like good Jesus followers. Every opportunity is an opportunity to speak of Jesus. So they're not necessarily praying to be released. If you put me in prison, I'm saying, God, get me out of here. And if there's an earthquake that is so violent that it shakes me free, but not so violent that the walls cave in and kill me, I am out. I'm tapping out. I don't know about you, but if you're in prison and God, through a creative miracle, shakes the chains loose, you could leave. I am going to run. Do Paul and Silas leave? No. Do any of the other prisoners leave? No. Who's in charge? Paul and Silas. Wait, guys, because the jailer's about to kill himself because to lose the prisoners would be to lose his own life. And you see a conversation here. What must I do to be saved? Immediately, the, the, the jailer had heard them singing praises to God. The jailer had known why they were put in, in, in jail. It was because of preaching this good news. And he sees the shaking of the prison as a sign that God is with Paul and Silas. And so the, the prison guard says, what must I do? Paul says, no one's left. What must I do to be saved? And then in a twist, the scene changes. They walk out of the prison and the jailer brings Paul and Silas into his house and washes their wounds. What a difference. We need to remember that we're the kind of people that should include the least likely. Principle number three, we're called to be patient in suffering, sacrificing for the good of others. I think that's what we get from this narrative. The fact that it's our privilege, our responsibility to take the hit. They literally took the hit. Paul and Silas, uh, they, they received the abuse and they took it on themselves. Not because they were weak. No, because they were strong. They knew that the Spirit of God was in them and that Jesus was with them. And out of love, they want the whole city to be saved. Paul knows that if he rebukes the leaders, he's going to get kicked out of town and he's not going to be able to preach in Philippi anymore. So what does he do? Out of love, he says, okay, you can abuse me, but you can't stop me from singing. You can't stop me from speaking. I must tell you what it takes to be saved. And so he preaches to the jailer. The jailer and his whole household Receive the good news. This church makes no sense. This is such a weird church. Business owners and former demonized slaves and now the jailer. This is a weird bunch. But God does something beautiful in Philippi. And he does something beautiful in every community where everyone is welcome because everyone needs to hear the good news. So I'm just calling us out. Who gets the privilege to sacrifice for the good of others? Us. What's the application? The application is, if church is where I get what I want, we're missing something. If church is all about me and my needs, we're missing something. Now, if you're the demonized woman, if you're the person who's struggling, if you're the person who has been abused and you are the victim and you are in pain, yes, this whole thing is for you that you would find healing in Jesus and wholeness in him. But once you find wholeness, you need to know this thing is not about you and it's not about me. It's about more people experiencing life in Jesus. And so in order for more people to experience in life in Jesus, the church is called to pay the dues. You and I, our role 
is to receive whatever inconvenience, suffering, pain, whatever it takes. We take the hit. Why? We love people. And out of love, show me a mature follower of Jesus and I will show you someone who's less concerned about their comfort and more concerned about the good of others. That's what it means to be mature. If you're not there yet, keep walking. If you're not there yet, if that sounds like crazy talk to you, keep coming. But the message won't change. We take the hits because God loves people. Now, this is the model of Jesus. Jesus, remember, takes the hits, literally. He's thrown out of town. He's, he's verbally talked evil against. Jesus is the one who's healing people by the power of God. And Matthew 10 says this. The student is not above his teacher or the servant above his master. Is it enough for the student to be like their teachers and servants like their masters? If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, which is demon, demonized, how much more the members of his household? Jesus is saying, they said of Jesus, he casts out demons by the demon Beelzebul. If they said it of Jesus, they will say it of Paul. If they say it of Paul, they may say it of you. you you're, you're, just, you're just a religious bigot. You're just hyper-conservative. You're just whatever they want to call you. Don't be surprised when people don't get it. But as the people of God, we do not react in violence. We resist the temptation to go eye for eye and tooth for tooth. In love, we turn the other cheek. We take the hit. Even though we know our heart motive is right, when people don't see it that way, that's okay. We go to prison. Why? At the right time, there's a shaking. At the right time, God steps in. At the right time, they're in need. And because we have shown what Jesus is like, they say, like the jailer, what must I do to be saved? You and I have the privilege of living in this community and showing what it's like to follow Jesus. Now, okay, if you feel like, I don't know if I could pull this off. Three things, and we're going to continue in worship. How do we pull this all together? Number one, we're called to find freedom in Jesus. Everyone in this chapter needs an encounter with Jesus. Every one of them needs the grace of Jesus. So Lydia needs to be saved, and the slave girl needs to be saved, and the jailer needs to be saved. Every one of them needs Jesus. And so if you get tired of hearing it, tune me out. You need Jesus. You need him more today than you needed him yesterday. And Jesus is here, and he wants to invade your life, and he wants to affect every part of you, every dimension, the seen and the unseen, because he loves you that much. And there is nothing better than living with and for Jesus. Nothing better in the world. So maybe this morning the application is find your life, your identity, your everything in Jesus. Second thing is find your place to serve, right? What do they do? Lydia opens her home. I think, it's not in the text, but I'm playing here. I think the slave girl, she's on the hospitality team. Why? Everyone wanted something from her. Now she has something to give. You see, she's been set free. I think she's on the hospitality team saying, you're welcome. They even let me in. You're welcome here. Now there's no doubt the jailer runs a security team. Duh. Like we know everyone's got their place. Paul and Silas teach Everyone has a role. When Paul leaves, he writes to the whole church, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. 
says to the whole church, to everyone in Christ, including overseers and deacons. Somehow in the mix, leaders were raised up. And that's what church is all about. You have a place to serve. I have a place to serve because the church is a mixed bag. There's everybody here. And you're welcome to participate. Third thing is find your ways to give. It's not the same exact thing as serving. It's kind of a nuance of it. And can I just get practical? This is one of the most generous churches I've ever been a part of. I love it here. Whenever there's a need, you step up. We don't have to hound about, can you give again and again and again? We're dying. Ship's going down. No. You give regularly and generously. And because of that, we don't have to talk about cash a lot. It doesn't mean it's not a necessary part of doing kingdom work. It just means you already get it. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't get it. And you think, oh, it's all good. I just, love, I just receive. I'm here. I have the gift of receiving. If you have the gift of giving, exercise. I have the gift of receiving. Maybe that's you. I, can, I, I feel that gift. I, I can relate to that gift. But you have something to give. Especially as we move into the season of growth. We're going to two morning gatherings starting in January, and an evening gathering. God's bringing more people. We're, we're having more opportunity to serve more people. We're, and more just means we need more because God's given us more to do. So I encourage you. I believe the Spirit has called us together to be a people who are radically generous. We give 20% of everything that comes in off the top, goes out the door to church planting and evangelism and the poor and the widow and the orphan here and around the world. I don't think it's enough. I think as a church, we need to go to 25%. Why? This is one of the wealthiest parts of the state. The highest income per family is Bethany in the entire state of Oregon. We are a wealthy community. Not everyone, but we're a wealthy community. So I'm saying, let's, let's give more not to get more. Let's give more so we can give more. I want to be that kind of radical church that every year ups the giving to others. Why? Because that's like Jesus. I hope you'll step in.